1881, an expedition with a crew of 25 left the United States and set sail for the Canadian Arctic. Their goal was twofold. One, take thousands upon thousands of coordinated scientific measurements capturing data on things like barometric pressure, temperature, and meteorological data over a two-year period. This was the United States' contribution to the first international polar year, where 11 different countries set up similar stations in the Arctic in order to collect data that would help us to better understand how the Earth's climate worked. This mission was accomplished. Two, travel further north than anyone in recorded history ever had, surpassing the existing British record that had remained unbroken since 1607. This mission was accomplished. That would have been where this story ended, if everything had gone as planned. After their first year at camp, a ship was supposed to meet the members of the Lady Franklin Bay expedition with supplies and news from home. Due to the unpredictability of pack ice, which choked the only route to the explorers, that ship never arrived. No big deal, they had enough supplies to last three years at their outpost, Fort Conger, and another ship would meet them the next year to bring them all home. A year later, that ship also found itself halted by pack ice. Its commander ordered them to push through anyway. Just hours later, that ship, the Proteus, was crushed in pack ice and sunk. Its crew survived and fled. That was a big deal because the crew of that ship was supposed to set up camp as a rescue party some 250 miles south of where our explorers had spent the last two years if they were unable to make it through the pack ice. The expedition's leader, Adolphus Greeley, had been told that if a ship didn't arrive to collect them once their work was complete, they could travel south by boat down to meet that rescue party, assuming they too wouldn't be crushed in the pack ice along the route. So that's what they did. Despite his officers urging him to keep everyone at Fort Conger where they still had supplies and access to wild game, Greeley ordered they get in a boat that wasn't equipped for pack ice and head south to meet a rescue party that wasn't actually there. Their steamboat had been abandoned after they became trapped in pack ice. The explorers abandoned ship put as many supplies as they could into their small whaling boats and drifted on the ice hoping it would last until they could find a safe landing. Now huddled together on an ice floe that grew smaller and smaller, the explorers eventually drifted to Cape Sabin on the Canadian side of the water after a miserable 51 days at sea. Just across the water from Cape Sabin was Littleton Island, where their rescue party, their salvation, was supposed to be. Unbeknownst to them, that rescue party had fled months ago. The explorers, now stranded on a rocky shore with no game and limited rations, began to starve. They were alone in a way most of us will never be alone, and for most of them, the sun had set for the last time. Their third Arctic winter was upon them, as the darkness they knew would last months covered their new, rocky, inhospitable outpost, they finally understood that no one was coming for them. This is part two, the finale, on the true story of the Lady Franklin Bay Expedition. I'm your host, Kristen Robine-Terpstra, and this is the History Cache.
Let's have a look inside. They were supposed to be home by now. Instead, they were burying the first of them to die. That was Sergeant William Cross, an expedition engineer, who died of scurvy and starvation on January 18, 1884, two months after they'd arrived at Cape Sabin, where they established their new camp, Camp Clay. They buried William in a grave on a hill overlooking the camp. Soon, they would start calling this Cemetery Hill. The party could have stayed at their first camp, Fort Conger, and potentially lived there, albeit uncomfortably, for years. At Fort Conger, there was game to hunt and rations enough to get them through a third winter. At Camp Clay, there was nothing to hunt. Down to their barest of rations now, Rice, the expedition's photographer, who had grown to become one of the most reliable and popular members of the group, began fishing for small crustaceans, minuscule shrimp, that appeared at the water's edge. These shrimp were 5 to 10 millimeters long, and it took about 1,500 of them to fill half a cup. They were better than nothing, though these tiny crustaceans were hardly enough to supplement their dwindling rations. All they could do now was wait, try to survive, and hope someone would not just come for them, but that they would be found at all in their new location. By March, the rations were at dangerously low levels, and talks of cannibalism had already made Joseph Ellison frightened of his own crew. Ellison had fallen to frostbite and exhaustion after trying to haul 500 pounds of meat left behind by a previous expedition back to camp. He survived after Rice and his team left the meat behind in order to save Ellison. He had already lost several fingers and a foot to frostbite, which made him the most vulnerable member of the group. Camp Clay was much more Spartan than Fort Conger had been. Here, they had only tents and a makeshift shelter constructed from an overturned whaleboat, too small for them to all fit comfortably inside. One night, when fumes from an alcohol lamp began causing them to feel dizzy, resulting in some of them to faint, they scrambled out of their shelter into the freezing night, which, according to PBS, was down to minus 25 degrees. That's over minus 31 degrees Celsius. When they were able to return to their shelter, several of them had contracted severe frostbite. While the chaos of frozen, starving bodies fleeing death from the fumes was creating a diversion, Private Charles Henry used the opportunity to steal food. He was caught after vomiting up undigested bacon. In an environment where everyone was slowly starving, stealing from what meager supplies of food they had was considered a grave offense. It would not be the last time Henry was caught stealing food. On April 5th, one of their hunters, Thorlip Christensen, an indigenous man who was one of only two expedition members to have any experience in an Arctic environment, died of starvation. The next day, Sergeant David Lynn, who had been commended for his ability to endure hardship, died of starvation. Desperate more than ever now, 
Rice, knowing the meager netting of minuscule crustaceans couldn't sustain them, decided to risk everything to bring in more food. His mind wandered to the 500 pounds of meat they had left behind when they'd rescued Ellison. It was a 12-hour walk back to that food cache. Rice had made that journey alone when he'd been better fed and stronger. Returning there and back again would be a perilous journey. But if he could bring back 500 pounds of meat, he could save the lives of his companions, or at least stave off the promise of certain death a little longer. This wasn't the first time Rice had put a plan to action. He'd led several expeditions out around Cape Sabin, looking for old supplies. He'd also tried walking across the frozen water to Littleton Island, off the coast of Greenland, where the rescue party he believed was there wasn't. He was stopped when he hit open water, and was forced to turn around. This time, he could let nothing stop him. The meat was on the Canadian side, and all he needed to reach it was a sled, some energy, and some decent weather. He wasn't alone. Accompanying him was Private Julius Frederick. At five feet two inches tall, everyone called him Shorty. The two set off together under a dimly lit sky. Just hours into their trek, they were hit with a fierce gale that battered them with wind for 22 hours. All they could do was huddle together in a sleeping bag and wait for the worst of it to be over. Rice was already exhausted. His bunkmate had died that morning as he and Fredericks were readying the sled. Rice had been too tired to bury him. Instead, he laid down next to the body and slept for a few hours, readying himself for this journey. When the storm was finally over, Fredericks could tell that hunger and exhaustion had taken a real toll on Rice. They wandered together to a spot behind a glacier and took cover. Here, Rice assured Fredericks he was only tired, that they could resume their journey after some rest. Fredericks watched over Rice with increasing concern. Rice began to talk of home, of food, of loved ones. He reminisced like someone who didn't just miss home, but someone who'd started to believe home was something he'd never see again. Seeing his friend fading, Fredericks took off his own parka and wrapped it around Rice despite the cold as he drifted into unconsciousness. Fredericks held Rice, sharing his warmth, the last comfort he could give to his companion. Then, there, behind that glacier, Rice breathed in the cold air for the last time and died in Fredericks' arms. Fredericks wrote about Rice's death, quote, I stopped and kissed the cheek of my dead companion and left him there for the wild winds of the Arctic to sweep over him. Fredericks didn't have much strength left, but he used what small reserve he had to bury Rice in a makeshift grave as best he could. There was no way he could carry Rice's body back to camp. Instead, he took the rations Rice had left and brought them back to Camp Clay for the others. He didn't have to. Fredericks could have eaten everything right there, choosing to take for himself what Rice had left, and no one would have known. 
Instead, he chose to share. At the edge of starvation, he chose to share. It's moments like this that prove the real metal of a person. Even now, at the edge of the world, amongst so much death and suffering, compassion and selflessness survived. The loss of Rice was heavy. He was a pillar of the expedition, and without him, their morale began to fade as quickly as they were. After Frederick's return without Rice, Lieutenant James Lockwood, Greeley's second-in-command, slipped into unconsciousness. He died of starvation 12 hours later. Beyond desperate now, they started eating candle wax, moss, and bird droppings. Even their own boots were consumed in pieces. Three days after Rice, Sergeant Winfield died. They'd given him extra rations, hoping some extra nutrients could save him, but to no avail. The mental health of the crew was deteriorating just as quickly as their physical health. On April 18, 1884, Greeley wrote about his second lieutenant, Frederick Kislingbury, quote, His mind is considerably affected, and he talks at times like an infant. Thinking and speaking became difficult. Our brains require a significant amount of energy to function properly. When food becomes scarce, our bodies prioritize other vital functions over maintaining normal brain activity. Concentration, memory, and the ability to make decisions can all become impaired. And scurvy only proves to make these symptoms worse. The survivors, their numbers dwindling, eventually became too weak to bury the dead. At times, it was hard to know who was a corpse and who was still a living person. On April 24th, a seal was spotted. The crew had one hunter left, an indigenous man named Jens Edwards. If Jens could bring in this seal, it would provide a desperately needed intake of calories for everyone. Jens, weak with hunger though he was, grabbed his harpoon and moved towards the seal. He had to venture out onto the ice in order to get close enough to take a shot. The ice thinned as he went, but this was literally a life-or-death hunt, which would have made Jens more willing to take risks. Sometimes risks outweigh reward. Jens fell through the ice and drowned. Back home, as their loved ones were enjoying the new warmth of spring, Greeley's wife, Henrietta, was still pleading with the government to mount a rescue for her husband and his crew. She'd been contacting everyone she could from the moment she'd heard their ship home hadn't reached them. Everyone either ignored her or refused to mount a rescue. The Lady Franklin Bay expedition had been doomed from the start. It had been poorly planned, poorly funded, and though Greeley and his crew still managed to fulfill their duties, the army had failed to bring them home and failed to carry out their contingency plan. Now, no one wanted to take on the responsibility or the expenditure of a rescue. David Shedd, a descendant of Greeley's who was interviewed by PBS, said it would be like sending out explorers into space losing track of them, then arguing about whether we could afford to go look for them. 
Tired of being ignored and rejected, Henrietta decided that it was time to try a new tactic to bring her husband home. She went to the press. Soon, papers all over the country were being asked to cover the disaster of Greeley's expedition. When the papers ran the story, public outcry grew, intensified, and soon it wasn't just Henrietta's voice demanding the army mount a rescue, but the voice of the American public. Buckling under the surmounting pressure and the media spotlight, finally, almost a year after Greeley and his crew should have already been home, a rescue was underway. On April 23rd, three ships embarked from New York, waved away by cheering crowds. Someone was finally coming for them. However, this was 1884. Things moved much more slowly then than they do now. And these ships didn't know exactly where Greeley was. Also, it was a long journey to Cape Sabin, and not an easy one. It would be two months before a rescue ship would find them. Two months the starving crew at Camp Clay did not have. For most of those still left alive, it was already too late. I want to tell you about a show I think you'll enjoy. Play on podcasts, epic audio adventures that reimagine Shakespeare's timeless tales, featuring original music composition and the voices of award-winning actors. Each episode explores plays from Macbeth to A Midsummer Night's Dream in a way that you can actually understand it and created specifically for the podcast form by some of America's most exciting playwrights, directors, and composers, and performed by stage and screen's best. Look out for their current series, The Tempest, and hear Shakespeare like you've never heard before. Subscribe to Play On Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the show. Back at Camp Clay, hope of survival was dwindling. Private Henry again was caught stealing food. With every death, there were more rations for the rest of them, but it still wasn't enough. By the end of April, seven of them were dead, with six of those deaths being attributed to starvation. After Jens fell through the ice on April 24th, there were no more deaths until May 19th. That's 26 days. After May 19th, we start to again see death from starvation happening at a much faster pace. Maybe the extra rations from the seven who had died helped supplement the diet of those still living. Or perhaps there was something else going on that staved off the starvation deaths for those few weeks. Rice had written in his journal weeks ago about the whispers of cannibalism. This is something we'll get back into in a bit, but I wanted to note it here, because it is odd we saw so many deaths in a row only to see them stop for such a long period of time to then pick back up again in rapid succession. On May 19th, a bear was spotted outside of camp, full of hundreds of pounds of meat, but no one had the strength to go after it. Just hours later, Private William Ellis died of starvation. Four days later, he's followed by Sergeant David Ralston. 
Three days after that, Edward Israel, their astronomer, a now 24-year-old kid who'd graduated college early to go on this expedition, died of starvation less than a month shy of rescue. Edward is the reason this series is happening. It was total happenstance that I walked past his grave in Michigan one day. I noticed a historical marker, read his story, and was immediately touched by what had happened to him. And getting into this story made me angry at times, because all the tragedy that occurred could have been avoided. It was just a mess of unpreparedness, bureaucracy, and what looks like desertion for a time. I can't imagine what the actual people involved in this must have been feeling. June 1st, 2nd Lieutenant Kislingbury, who had been muttering to himself for some time, died. June 3rd, Corporal Nicholas Saylor dies. June 6th, Private Henry is reprimanded a third time for stealing food. This time, Greeley warned them all that the next person to steal food would be shot. The next day, Henry was caught stealing food again, and Greeley shot him. June 12th, Sergeant Hampton Gardner dies. Soon, Roderick Schneider starts begging for opium pills so he can take his own life and end his suffering. He was, of course, refused. He died of starvation shortly thereafter on June 18th, four days before rescue. Those who had journals began writing their goodbyes in them. Greeley continued writing to his wife, though he had little hope of ever seeing her again. He wrote to her, saying, quote, Darling Greta, we but await the grave. Do not wear mourning for me. Greeley had been married to Henrietta for six years. Three of them had been spent away from her. Their sixth wedding anniversary was June 20th. By then, only seven of the original 25 crew members were left alive, including Greeley. Those last seven huddled together in a tent that evening. A storm hit, one so fierce it collapsed their tent. For the next 24 hours, they simply laid together underneath the fallen canvas, too tired to move. The tent flooded as they drifted in and out of consciousness. They must have thought this was the end. They were so exhausted and so confused, their minds muddled from hunger and scurvy that they weren't sure if the ship's whistle they heard was real or simply a wistful phantom, some way for their minds to bring them comfort as they lay there dying. When the rescue party reached shore, they were horrified at what they saw. One of their rescuers wrote, quote, Close to the opening lay what was apparently a dead man. On the opposite side was a poor fellow without hands or feet with a spoon tied to the stump of his right arm. Two others were pouring some liquid from a rubber bottle into a tin can. Directly opposite, on his hands and knees, was a dark man in a tattered dressing gown with a long, matted beard and brilliant staring eyes. Who are you? we asked. Greeley, is this you? The doctor examining them said that at most the last of them would have only survived another 48 hours. 
Sergeant Joseph Ellison had been the first of them to suffer from severe frostbite months ago, when he and the now-deceased George Rice had gone looking for supplies, the same supplies Rice had died trying to recover. On board the rescue ship, the Neptune, doctors saw the gangrene infecting Ellison's limbs. They immediately went to work amputating his hands and legs in order to save his life. But it was too late. He died aboard the ship just after rescue. What was left of him weighed 78 pounds. That's around 35 kilos. Of the 25 bright, energetic, hopeful crew that had left for the Lady Franklin Bay expedition, only six would return home alive. The rescue team went about collecting the dead to bring their bodies home to their families. When they moved to recover the bodies that had been buried on Cemetery Hill, Greeley strongly objected. Despite this, the bodies were exhumed. It was clear some of them had been stripped of their flesh. There were cut marks that could have only been made with a knife. The rescuers had already begun to draw their own conclusions. Greeley claimed the flesh had been stripped from the corpses so it could be used as bait for fishing. Before leaving camp, the survivors made sure the scientific data they had taken was recovered. Nineteen of their colleagues had died for that data, and it had been kept safe throughout their entire journey. When they had left to find rescue, it had gone with them. When they were stranded on a melting ice floe over some of the coldest water in the world, it had drifted with them. Even as they had starved, one by one, they kept it safe. It was their legacy, and it had come at a heavy price. When the survivors returned home, the success of their mission, the data collection, the new record set for furthest north, and their obedience to the contingency plan to leave their first camp for Cape Sabin were all overshadowed by scandal. Greeley was villainized. Accusations of cannibalism, the shooting of Private Henry for stealing food, and his decision to leave Fort Conger would be stains on his reputation that would follow him for the rest of his life. All of the survivors were implicated in the accusations of cannibalism. Greeley said he couldn't deny that cannibalism had taken place, but he held fast to claiming that if it had occurred, he hadn't known about it. To this day, no one knows if the accusations of cannibalism were true or not. There is that span of several weeks where we saw a downturn in the number of deaths, and it's undeniable that some of the corpses had been posthumously carved with a knife. The survivors were the only ones who truly knew what happened at Cape Sabin. If cannibalism did occur, they took that secret to their graves. If cannibalism did not occur, then they lived out the rest of their lives with much of the public not believing in their innocence. The army was also targeted. Its reputation was sullied for the clear indifference and poor planning that had led to the deaths of 19 people, and it seemed to hold a grudge. Greeley had given promotions to some of the enlisted soldiers during the expedition. None of them were recognized when they returned home, and the pay the survivors had been promised was withheld for years. 
No one cared about the data they'd brought home. It was overshadowed by scandal. Greeley published it, protected it as the legacy of those who had been lost, but for years it sat untouched and unused. For over a century, it did nothing but collect dust. Now, its importance has finally been recognized. That data has been used to help us understand how global warming has affected our climate since the time of Greeley's expeditions. The thousands of readings taken by the crew of the Lady Franklin Bay expedition has greatly enriched our understanding of climate and the ways in which we have altered nature over the last century. It was easy for everyone to judge Greeley and the survivors from afar, from a place of comfort where they didn't entirely understand the hardships those men had to endure. Greeley made the choice to leave Fort Conger. Yes, if he hadn't, it's possible they would have all survived. But when he left, he did so because that was the contingency plan he had been given. According to the Army Heritage Center Foundation, Greeley had to weigh the odds, had to consider that any relief ships wouldn't have looked for them at Fort Conger, and that a relief ship may never have reached them there. He did what he was told to do. He had driven them south to what had become their doom. After that, despite numerous requests from his wife for anyone to send another rescue vessel, they were left there with minimal supplies. They hadn't even been left a ship large enough for them to bring themselves home because the organizers thought a ship would distract them from their mission. As for the insinuations of cannibalism, I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions. I've been fortunate enough never to be in a situation where I've had to decide whether or not to consume the body of another person, so I can't judge. For me personally, if I expired and thought my leftovers could save the lives of my companions, I'd say, bon appetit. I wish I would have had more time to go even more in-depth on this series like I was able to for the series on Shackleton. There are a lot of parallels between that expedition and this one, just at opposite ends of the world. Each of the crews had to travel by boat to a new location. Both found themselves stranded on a shrinking piece of pack ice. Both had to survive on a rocky landscape as they slowly starved. Both saw their return to home date come and go as they faced yet another unpredicted winter they weren't prepared for. Shackleton's goal had been to cross the continent of Antarctica on foot. That mission failed. They never even set foot on the continent during that expedition, save for Elephant Island, 150 miles from the mainland. Yet Shackleton's expedition was applauded almost as if it had been a success, because everyone in his crew survived. And that was incredible. Greeley's mission was technically a success in that they'd achieved everything they had set out to do, but because of the horrendous loss of life, it was heralded as an overwhelming failure. As for Greeley, he continued to work for the Signal Corps. He never publicly degraded the army for having left him and his crew. Eventually, he was promoted to chief officer and had a successful career in which, among other things, he helped lay thousands of miles of telegraph lines everywhere from Alaska to Cuba. In 1935, he received a Congressional Medal of Honor for his considerable career in public service. Seven months later, he passed away at the age of 95. 
He's buried in Arlington National Cemetery, next to Henrietta, without whose perseverance they would have all been lost. 140 years later, the work carried out by the crew of the Lady Franklin Bay Expedition is still relevant. The data they died for has had a huge impact on our understanding of the Arctic, and it continues to inspire and inform modern-day explorers and scientists who seek to understand what it means for our planet. Their legacy remains. Not just in the lessons we've learned about our climate, but in the unending pursuit of the human spirit that strives to push the boundaries of what's possible. I mentioned in the first episode that when Greeley set out for the expedition, Henrietta hadn't wanted him to go. She said it was pride and ambition that drove him. He said he just wanted to make his mark on the world. 140 years later, I think it's finally safe to say, mission accomplished. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. I know the Lady Franklin Bay Expedition wasn't the happiest piece of history to cover, but I hope you could take something good away from it. Again, I wish I could have made this one an even deeper dive. Despite my limitations, I hope I did their story justice. I'll make sure and cover something lighter for you next time. By the way, huge shout out to my newest patron, Lisa. Lisa, it's support like yours that helps keep this podcast going, and your awesomeness knows no bounds. Tell Zephyr I said hi. I'll be back again in three weeks with more history for you. If you enjoyed listening to the show today, please consider rating and following on iTunes or wherever you listen so I can finally be swept up in the current of algorithms. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram, and not really on Twitter anymore, though I do still have an account there, and I check it from time to time when I post new episodes. Background music is licensed through Envato Elements, theme song through Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay smart, stay curious. And until we meet again, my dear friends, go make some history.